time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How you doing? Good morning. Uh, thanks very much for having me. I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, COVID-free and can't complain. Absolutely. A number of very interesting stories on this week's show. In fact, I'm going to be interviewing the father, who is the subject of our first story coming up on the noon show today. So I'm thankful that we can or that you can help me better understand the legalities of this case before we get there. Oh, that's uh, good to hear. Uh, it's, uh, I think, really interesting case and a potentially important one for parents of young children. Um, so this case arose a couple of years ago, uh, and the fellow involved with it was a single uh, dad. Um, he shared uh, parenting responsibilities with his uh, former partner equally. Uh, they both lived in Vancouver on different uh, sides of the city, uh, and they had five children. Uh, the children were ages 10, 9, 8, 7, and 5, which of course makes you wonder what was going on six years ago. Uh, now, the, uh, the father, uh, over a period of time, had spent uh, two years teaching his uh, uh, children uh, how to ride the public bus. Yes. Uh, and uh, the uh, evidence was that uh, over that two-year period, he repeatedly rode the bus with them, slowly stepping back, showing them uh, what they needed to do. And the bus was important so that the children could get to school over where their mother lived, right? Because they shared time equally, but their school was near the mom's house. Yes. Um, and the father took other steps, including things like uh, getting a cell phone uh, for the children with a location tracker so he could track where they were at all times. And then eventually, after that two years of teaching them what to do and uh, having the cell phone, uh, he would uh, allow uh, the oldest four children, 10, 9, 8, and 7, to ride the public bus together to get to school or get to their mom's house. Well, somebody complained to the Ministry of Children and Families about that, uh, alleging that they, uh, the children were somehow in need of protection uh, because they were on the bus without an adult present. The Ministry of Children and Families investigated that. Um, they found uh, that the father was an excellent father, interactive and supportive of his children. Uh, they had a healthy, good relationship. Um, and he'd taken all the steps that I just indicated in terms of teaching them how to ride the bus and making sure they had a cell phone and this sort of thing. But nonetheless, uh, the ministry concluded that they thought uh, it was not uh, permissible uh, for him to allow his uh, four oldest children to ride the bus without adult supervision. And indeed, they presented him uh, with a legal opinion uh, saying that, which expressed the view that a court would likely find that a 10-year-old child should not be taken, taking transit uh, unless accompanied by an adult, uh, and uh, in those circumstances would find that a child was in need of protection. And the implication of finding that a child is in need of protection can be the ministry apprehending the child, right? You'd no longer yes. be able to care for the child, so very serious consequences. Yes. They then had the father uh, sign a safety plan, uh, whereby he agreed uh, not to allow uh, the children to ride the bus without an adult present until further direction from the Ministry of Children and Families. Now, uh, he didn't think that was appropriate, uh, and he took the matter to court to challenge it. Um, and it eventually got to the Court of Appeal, uh, who just uh, rendered a decision uh, finding that uh, the Ministry's decision was both unreasonable uh, and they lacked the authority to do what they purported to do. 
Um, interestingly, one of the defenses the Ministry of Children and Families uh, advanced uh, and the Court of Appeal uh, roundly rejected was a suggestion that, oh no, we weren't exercising or, uh, any statutory authority or making any decision at all. Uh, we just made a recommendation to him. Well, the court didn't have uh, any time for that uh, because, of course, when the uh, ministry tells you you better do something or your children may be in need of protection and you better sign this agreement, the implication of that is that if you don't do what they're telling you to do, uh, your children may be taken away. So they had absolutely no time for the director's claim uh, that they weren't making any kind of an order which the court could review. It sounds like they were suggesting that this was just kind of some kind of a helpful tip or something, uh, but none of the material they gave to the father, including this uh, report and legal opinion and requiring him to sign uh, that agreement, suggested in any way uh, that they were just making some helpful suggestion. It would appear clear from all of that uh, they were ordering him to do this or else with the implicit threat that he would lose his children if he continued to permit them to ride uh, the bus. Uh, the other uh, interesting uh, point the Court of Appeal made um, is that uh, they pointed out that all through the legal process, while the director's lawyer was in court arguing that, you know, this wasn't really a decision, it was just a, you know, helpful suggestion, things of that sort, yes. that the director's delegates, like the social workers, didn't behave in that way at all. And so you had the uh, director for children and families often the Court of Appeal and in the Supreme Court taking this position that, you know, this is nothing to be reviewed, it's just a helpful suggestion, uh, while at the same time uh, all of the material and the way the uh, direct, like the social workers were acting was entirely inconsistent with the, uh, the legal position uh, that the director was arguing in court to try to justify uh, what they had done. Uh, and I must say the director, well, it's usually the case that a review of an administrative decision like this wouldn't produce a costs award. It's clear that uh, while the father didn't get the cost award from the Court of Appeal, it was right on the edge, given uh, that the, uh, the social workers continued to act uh, in a fashion inconsistent with what the director was claiming uh, in court, uh, and ultimately, the Court of Appeal, I think, kindly described the delegates or the social workers as misguided in their mm. uh, communications and approach. Um, so uh, an important case, an important case both for the dad, right, trying to get his kids to school, yes. uh, but also uh, hopefully uh, that will change how the uh, Ministry of uh, Children, Families, and Community Services uh, is behaving. Uh, because uh, when you're telling somebody you better do such and such, or, you know, if you don't, your children may be found to be at, at risk, you're really telling the person you're going to lose your kids unless you do something. That's not a helpful suggestion. Yeah. And so here, the Court of Appeal found this was unreasonable, uh, and they lacked authority to do what they were doing. Uh, and uh, so it's a uh, it's a vindication for Dad, which uh, I think uh, when you read the the description of uh, what kind of a father he was and the safety steps that he took in terms of making sure the kids were safe and tracking them on a phone. Um, it sounds to me like uh, this is a circumstance where the, uh, the Ministry of Children and Families uh, went well beyond what they should have been doing. Um, of course, there are many kids that do genuinely need uh, protection, yes. and so every uh, hour you spend um, on a 
caring father who uh, seems to be, by all accounts, um, behaving in a you know a, a careful and uh, uh, considered way with respect to his children. Every uh, uh, hour and dollar you spend on this fellow uh, is an hour and dollar you don't have to spend or you don't have to spend in cases uh, where there are kids that are genuinely in danger. Um, and this is a ministry which uh, forever appears to be short on funds. Uh, and so this, I think, was an unfortunate uh, enterprise, and uh, good on the dad for pursuing the matter to the Court of Appeal and getting the decision he did. Indeed. And again, we will be interviewing this father uh, today during the noon show. Our next item on the agenda, B.C. Court of Appeal holding upholding a 12-month jail sentence, Michael, for, for producing marijuana. I thought it was legalized now. What's going on? <laughs> well, I think a lot of people would think that, uh, other than this uh, poor fellow who's going to be sitting in the uh, in jail for 12 months. Um, so the circumstances of this case was an Aboriginal man um, who was uh, convicted of uh, producing marijuana uh, and possessing it for the purpose of uh, trafficking, uh, growing it in a rural community in B.C. Um, and after the conviction, uh, there was a thing called a GLAD-DO report, uh, which was ordered. And a GLAD-DO report uh, is a report uh, that is named after a 1999 Supreme Court of Canada decision, uh, which deals with um, sentencing for Aboriginal people. Um, and that case from the Supreme Court of Canada um, was uh, one which uh, interpreted a section of the criminal code that's designed to reduce the number of Aboriginal people uh, who are in prison. And it was interpreting section 718.2 that says this, um, all available sanctions other than imprisonment that are reasonable in the circumstances and consistent with the harm done to victims or to the community should be considered for all offenders with particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. And that's, I think, a really important section, and particularly important in the current context where there's discussions of systemic uh, racism and yes. uh, treatment by the uh, justice system. And I should say that since 1999, we have not done well uh, in terms of trying to reduce the number of Aboriginal people who are in prison. Uh, and here are the stats from this year. We, the Aboriginal people, Indigenous people in Canada, make up about 5% of the population. Yes. They account now for more than 30% of people who are serving federal jail sentences. Huh. That's wow. an increase from about 25% four years ago. And Aboriginal women account for 42% uh, of the women who are serving uh, federal uh, jail sentences. Wow. That is really uh, unfortunate. It is, okay. um, and to give you some sense of what's happened since that Gladue decision, back in, well, a year after that in 2010, back in 2010, um, the uh, number of uh, people who are Aboriginal, the percentage of people who are in prison, has actually increased by 43.4%, whereas non, the non-Indigenous population has declined by 13.7%. So, since Gladue, a case designed to sort of give some more life to that section that I've referred to in the criminal code, the number of Aboriginal people total has gone up by 43%, while non-Indigenous people in prison has gone down by 137 A terrible outcome. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, this case from the Court of Appeal was talking about, you know, had the sentencing judge uh, taken sufficient uh, consideration to this man's Aboriginal background when deciding that a 12-month jail sentence needed to be imposed for growing marijuana. The other argument was made was, look, haven't community values changed? 
um, you know, uh, cannabis is now legal. Yeah. Very, very unfortunately, I think, uh, the Court of Appeal re- uh, dismissed the sentence appeal and found that even though uh, the fact that public attitudes may have changed didn't uh, affect the um, suitability of the uh, 12-month jail sentence, uh, nor did uh, the way the judge dealt with the Gladue considerations. And I must say, in terms of the, as the court um, uh, sort of dismisses the idea that community standards uh, or attitudes may have changed, not being a, a significant factor, to my mind, as well as not perhaps paying adequate consideration to the statistics I've just mentioned in terms of Aboriginal people in jail, um, in terms of community values in marijuana, that's given pretty short shift by the Court of Appeal uh, in this uh, decision. But it strikes me that it's much more than a, a shift in community uh, values. We, we now have the province of British Columbia running for-profit marijuana stores. Indeed. That's more than a shift in public opinion. Um, it, it strikes me that, you know, that at least should be taken as some evidence that there's been a determination that this substance is not as harmful as we once thought it was uh, for, you know, if it's uh, so harmful that we need to send people, Aboriginal people, to prison for extended periods of time, why in the world do we have the uh, province of, of British Columbia and other provinces now openly selling the substance? So, um, there it is. Um, that I think it's a, a decision worth commenting on both in terms of that really difficult issue concerning Aboriginal people in custody and how hard it is to try to make progress in that uh, regard. Um, one of the things, of course, that in some circumstances makes that a, a hard thing to achieve, uh-huh. unlike, I suppose, in this case where it's growing marijuana, is so often it's the case, like in the Gladue case itself, that case from back in 1999, which was a British Columbia case, that was a circumstance of an Aboriginal woman who killed her husband. Um, So often you have a circumstance where you've got the victim of uh, uh, offenses where there's an accused person who's Aboriginal also being an Aboriginal person. Uh, And, you know, that that itself may be uh, an indication of just some of the just really fundamental uh, and systemic uh, challenges um, and why perhaps it's been so hard for the uh, justice system to uh, correct what appears to be a very significant uh, over-representation of Aboriginal people in prison, which most unfortunately has only exploded uh, over the last uh, decade. So we have much more work to do there, and I think people should be aware that You know, the criminal code provides for it. The Supreme Court of Canada has provided, you know, instruction about how significant that is and how we're all to deal with it. Uh, But sometimes that becomes uh, hard or isn't uh, occurring when you get down to the individual uh, case, like perhaps this Aboriginal man who's going to spend 12 months in prison as a result of producing marijuana. I think it's very helpful, and I want to thank you, Michael, for explaining exactly what a Gladue report is and is not, because uh, I know some people out there are under the mistaken impression that a Gladue report of the Gladue principles results in all Aboriginal offenders automatically qualifying for lighter sentences. Not true at all. The obligation is to consider factors, not to be necessarily swayed at one's decision point by those factors. It is consideration that is, that is asked. Yes? Yes, that's absolutely correct. And when you look at the outcome, uh, the outcome appears to be, despite the fact that we have those reports, and uh, I'm sure judges are carefully considering them, uh, we still have a circumstance 
Uh, we are increasing the number of Aboriginal uh, people who are in prison, both in terms of absolute numbers and in terms of the uh, percentage of people who are in prison. Uh, and at the moment, federally, they're about six times overrepresented uh, from what you would expect based on the number of Aboriginal people uh, in the Canadian population. So uh, good principles, uh, good admonition for all of us, but the uh, outcome uh, is clearly not uh, achieving the desired result, at least yet. We have one more story on the docket today regarding the possible changes that may be made to the civil court system in response to the backlogs with COVID-19, and it intersects with a topic you and I have discussed any number of times, motor vehicle litigation and how it may pertain to things like ICBC. Yes, indeed. Uh, so uh, much like the courts dealing with criminal matters have been struggling dealing with uh, keeping people safe while moving cases forward in the age of COVID-19, uh, the uh, processing and handling of civil claims has also uh, run up uh, against a whole number of challenges, uh, and it's produced uh, suggestions by the Attorney General that he presented to the uh, Trialers Association of BC that represent uh, lawyers who do um, civil litigation work, including ICBC cases. Yes. Um, and the suggestions made by the Attorney General to the trial lawyers were suggestions about uh, doing things including potentially suspending uh, the right of people to have uh, a civil jury trial um, and potentially uh, requiring people to deal with uh, cases by way of what's called uh, arbitration or binding arbitration. Now, civil jury trials are an interesting thing. Most mm -hmm. people are familiar with jury trials in criminal cases, right? We've all yeah. seen 12 angry men. Yes. Well, <laughs> we also have civil juries uh, in British Columbia. And civil juries only have eight people on them rather than 12. Uh -huh. uh, and in addition, they don't have to be unanimous like a criminal jury would need to be. Um, six out of eight, if they've deliberated, I think it's for three hours, is sufficient. And that comes from the fact that when you're suing somebody for money, you don't need to prove it beyond all reasonable doubt. It, it just has to be established on a balance of probabilities. Yes. So we don't need to have the same very rigorous standard we'd require before we send somebody off to prison if what we're determining is, you know, how much money should be awarded for uh, negligence, for example. Yes. Um, and so they are an important thing to have, both in terms of the um, fact that it brings community standards to the justice system, but I think also important, having community members serve on juries, civil and criminal, and then having them go back and report to their friends and family about what we're all doing up at the courthouse, I think is also really valuable in terms of maintaining uh, public confidence in the system. Um, so they're important things. Um, it's also interestingly, perhaps not surprising, uh, that the Trialers Association to response to the Attorney General's proposal uh, includes, I think, the not unreasonable suggestion that, look, if you want our cooperation in doing these things, you should be abandoning um, your misguided efforts to impose um, mandatory no-fault ICBC insurance on people. Indeed. Uh, because that's the group of lawyers who would be dealing with injured people um, suing ICBC and other drivers. Uh, and they've pointed out as well that uh, ICBC, right, the entity that the government wants to give essentially un, you know, authority that would be not reviewable in a, any meaningful way by a court because you'd be unable to sue the other driver in a car accident, um, that uh, ICBC has been, uh, at least in some cases, appears to be strategically using a request for jury trials to produce adjournments in 
uh, ICBC claims. Um, and there's at least uh, one clear decision where their effort to do that was rejected by the court. Uh, and so it's another example of uh, how there, I think, is not unreasonably uh, a concern that uh, based on how ICBC is shown to conduct itself, uh, if, uh, like a no-fault system would allow, they are permitted to simply make decisions that a court couldn't uh, review, um, you uh, are likely to see uh, unfairness to people who are uh, injured. And so the Attorney General, while proposing this no-fault ICBC scheme, uh, is running into some uh, pushback uh, on uh, his suggestions in terms of how to uh, unclog uh, the backlog uh, being created by virtue of the fact that we, uh, at the moment, uh, just can't force either 8 or 12 people uh, to serve in a small room uh, as uh, jurors. Um, so uh, that's the current state of affairs there. Uh, and uh, one thing I should say the Attorney General could do uh, without needing the agreement of the Trialers Association would be to provide direction to ICBC uh, to uh, act in a fashion which is designed to be fair to everyone and not use these sort of things strategically. Yeah, and it, but I thought that CRT decisions were reviewable to some degree, but I just, I, I barely had my head around Dunsmuir and then the Bell Canada <laughs> case happened and then Vavilov happened, and I have no idea what it is now, but maybe that's for another day. Um, almost out of time, Michael, but thank you for your time as always. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Stay All right. safe. All right, thank you so much. Michael Mulligan.